Today we come to our final, se- final part of the series, What is Church? We've taken a look at very, various questions along the day. First of all, we took a look at what is the foundation of the church. And the foundation is Jesus. He is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He is the rock on which we stand. And then we took a look at two questions, or the next question is, what are the essential functions of the church? And we took a look at teaching, at fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And then last week, we took a look at what is the mission of the church. Do you remember what is the mission of the church? You were here last week? Yes, yes. The mission of the church is to make disciples. That is the mission of the church. It's Some people want it to have more sizzle, right? It's like, not that exciting. Make disciples. They wanted to have it have more than that. But it was certainly sufficient for Jesus. That's the core of what we are to do, is to make disciples. It's actually pretty straightforward. To know Jesus as Lord and Savior is to become alive in Him. To be His disciple then is to follow Him, to learn more, to grow deep in the love and knowledge of Jesus. And then to make disciples is to become bold, to grow bold in the Gospel message. This is it in a nutshell. Yet when churches forget this mission, they die. They die and dwindle either in numbers or they die spiritually. Because without this, there is no driving force keeping them together. There is just stuff that we do. This is the mission of of the church worldwide. Any Christian church should have this at the center of its mission, which is to make disciples. This is the mission of Joy Church. Make disciples. Now in a moment, I'm going to show you a spectrum of discipleship. If I've met with you, you've probably received this handout already. For those, uh, everybody should have a sermon notes, and on the back of the sermon notes, it shows this particular discipleship spectrum. This spectrum is not hard and fast. It's not like there's an automatic line of demarcation. But I at least had to put something down so you understand kind of the, the, the flow of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So let's go through it a little bit. The first one is non-believer. This is pretty straightforward. People say Christianity is not true. That's the beginning point. Christianity is not true. But then we have this thing called a cultural believer. A cultural believer says, I believe Christianity is kind of true. I think, you know, kind of true. But other religions might be true, too. There might be many different paths to God. And, well, maybe just Christianity is a good fit for me. That's a cultural believer. But Jesus says there's a choice. You need to make a choice here. And the default choice, by the way, the default choice for most people is this, is to become a churchgoer follower. A churchgoer follower. 
says, I guess Christianity is true and it's good to go to church. I do it because it seems right and what's what my parents did. Going to church and maybe helping out, that's really all that's asked of me. That's, that's what being a disciple is. But is that it? Is that it? You see, uh, I think that's the state of much of our church today in America. Much of our, the state, we've got a bunch of churchgoers, followers. Let me uh, give you an example, though, of what it means in this progression. So I have a friend I met in seminary. His name is Scott Stroud. He's a pastor of an AFLC church in California. By the way, he's given me permission to share his story. Scott was originally from Minnesota, and early in his life he made some uh, poor choices. And he ended up going to jail. He went to jail for four years. And during his time in prison, he met met a man named Pete. And Pete would lead some Bible studies. And really, Scott started going to the Bible studies during the last leg of his time in prison. And uh, Pete gave Scott his phone number and said that he should give him a call when he gets out, when he got out. Well, Scott did get out, and uh, it was a lot harder on the outside than he imagined that it would be. And after a couple of weeks, he gave Pete a call, and they met at a local restaurant. And then Pete asked him a question that profoundly affected Scott's life, the rest of his life. He said, Scott, you have two options in front of you. You can be a nice Christian, find a nice Christian church, settle down with a nice Christian woman, have a family of your own, and probably have a wonderful, peaceful life, and eternity is your reward. Or you can become a disciple. When Pete asked Scott that, And said that, it struck him to his heart. Because he knew, he knew in his heart that he wanted to follow God with all of his life. And it brought him to tears. But Scott said, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to be just a Sunday morning Christian. But I don't know how to be a disciple. And Pete said this, My wife and I want you to move into our house if you want to travel the road, to take the road that is less traveled. You see, what was Pete doing? Pete was inviting Scott to be a disciple. A disciple says Christianity is true with a capital T. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is God who died for my sins, and I'm learning to follow Him, to be a follower of Jesus, to know Him, love Him, and follow and obey His commands. Now, who was Pete in all of this? Pete was a disciple maker. What is a disciple maker? A disciple maker says, Christianity is vitally true. It's not just true for me. It's true for everyone. It is vitally true. Because the gospel really is the power of God for salvation unto all who believe. I share the gospel message. But it's not just about evangelism. 
I walk alongside others in faith and not only encourage them, but I challenge them to learn and grow and to be disciples and disciple makers. Now, was Pete an evangelist? Was he going door to door doing all of this? I don't know if he went door to door. Maybe he did. But for Scott, in that moment, he was a disciple maker. Therefore, this morning, we're going to take a look at this question. What's your role in the command that Jesus gave, make disciples? We're going to take a look at this command of making disciples and your role in it by looking at and understanding three things. What God has done for us, what God has given to us, and what God calls us to do. So let's take a look at what God has done for us. We must be grounded first in what God has done for us. So we're going to go to our reading today. It is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. You have just 18 and 19 on the screen. Listen again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a pretty rare word in the Bible. But here, you can see it's used four times in two verses. That repetition shows the importance of that particular word. So we better understand what it means to be reconciled. At a basic level, reconciliation is to be reconciled, to have your relationship restored. At a basic level, that is reconciliation, to have your relationship restored. You see, you know this. When two people have an argument, there's a gap in the relationship, right? And the bigger the argument, the bigger the gap. And that gap needs to be bridged somehow. There needs to be a reconciliation between two parties. In some respects, reconciliation means removing the offense that created the gap. That make sense? Actually, you know this. You know this. You ever seen two kids play with a toy at the same time? Right? I want it. I want it. It's mine. It's mine. I saw it first. And how long can this go on? As long as you can stand it, right? As a parent or grandparent. And then what do you do? You have to either have them get along or you have to take away the toy. You have to remove The offense, so to speak. That's the only way reconciliation occurs. Now, this plays out very much the same way with adults, except just a little bit on a more sophisticated level. With adults, it is much more about selfishness and pride. It's not about the car or the house or how much money or whatever other yardstick of success we want to use. It really comes down to selfishness and pride between two 
parties. And the selfishness and pride can lead you or the other person to do things that are offensive. It can be lying. It can be gossip. It can be slander. It can escalate also. Because once you really get involved and can only see what is selfish and are filled with pride, your heart hardens. And when your heart hardens, you go down into depravity. And there's theft, stealing from somebody else. There's also murder. There's also rape. There are heinous things that people do to one another because of hardness of heart, because of true selfishness and pride. And what happens when that occurs? The person who has done the offense needs to be removed, don't they? Because they are the offense. And so we send people to jail because of the offense that they have become. And when things are so bad... You think about the Nuremberg trials and the crimes against humanity, how horrific those were. The offense was so great, it was the death penalty, wasn't it? Because there couldn't be no reconciliation. On a human level, there could be no reconciliation with people who have done such heinous crimes against others. Death is the only way to remove the offense. And you and I are in that situation when it comes to God. Our offense is so great that we deserve the death penalty. Now, I know you don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. My offense is that great before God? Oh, come on. And most people, by the way, use a sliding scale. And they start with somebody who is so heinous, they normally start with Hitler or somebody like that. Well, at least I'm not Hitler. I might not be. And then what else would they say? Who's up here? Mother Teresa. That often comes in. Well, I might not be Hitler, I might not be Mother Teresa, but I'm at least in the middle somewhere. And normally most of us put us a little above average. It's that Lake Wobegon effect, Garrison Keeler. We're all just a little bit above average. And when we use a sliding scale like that, we whitewash our sin. And we think it's not so bad. But our sin against a holy God is heinous. And what are the wages of sin? Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death. We deserve to be removed from God because we are the offense. Thus there can only there is only one way, way reconciliation can be done because we if we are the offense we can't actually reconcile ourselves the only way that the reconciliation can occur is if the action comes from God it is God who reconciles us let us go to the text here so i'm going to read verses 17 then 18 and 19 again. You just have uh, 19 in there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It is God who takes the action in our reconciliation. It is God who reconciled the world to himself. You know, we often talk about bearing the weight of the world. You know, we've got the weight of the, the world on our shoulders and all of that. Well, in Christ Jesus, God the Father placed the full weight of sin, the full weight of the world's sin upon Him. All of the depravity, all of the heinous acts, all of the sin of the world was placed on Him, and He bore that on the cross. And by putting all of this on Jesus, by Jesus taking all of this on, God did not count our trespasses against us. Verse 21 says, for our sake. That means put your name in there. Put your name in there for our sake, for Clayton's sake, for your sake. Put your name in there. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By becoming our sin, Jesus Christ took away all of the offense. Thus, you and I are reconciled to God. I would encourage you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, if you've got your Bible. This also clarifies... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus reconciled us to himself, killing the hostility between us and God. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel message. That is what God has done for us. Do you understand that? Do you, do you take that in? It doesn't move you at all. Because this is the good news. This is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus taught. This is what must fill us. What God has done for us. Now, what has God given us? He's given us a ministry of reconciliation. Listen again, verses 18 and 19. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God gave Paul, and we believe by extension, all of us here, all of us sitting here, any, any 
person in any Christian church throughout the world has been given a ministry of reconciliation. Now, when we heard the word ministry, by the way, that seems kind of odd because most of us think that ministry is something that the pastor does or some official part of the church. But at its core, at the Greek, it means diakonos, and that simply means to serve. So Paul is a servant of reconciliation. Paul serves the gospel message. Do you understand that? That's what ministry is, to be able to serve, and in this case, to be able to serve on behalf of the reconciliation that Jesus gave us. But Paul is not simply a servant. A, uh, he's, it says that uh, in, in your, it's not on the screen, but in your bulletin, in your Bible, it says that God entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. To entrust is to say that you have the responsibility that you are called to be in this particular ministry. And it's a sacred trust. It's something that you hold precious and something that you are supposed to do. I don't know if any of you remember the parable of the ten talents. It's in Matthew 25 or Luke 19, uh, the parable of the minas. That's what it's called in Luke. But the master was going to go away. And he gave each of the servants in Matthew's gospel ten talents, a sum of money. And when he came back, the two of the servants said, Look, I've, I've doubled what you gave me. And the other one said, I, I put it in the bank. I, I didn't want it to do anything. I didn't want to lose it. In the other parable, it's like, put it in the ground, covered it up. Jesus had harsh words for people who did not utilize what he gave them. He's entrusted to each of you with a message of reconciliation. What will you do with that message? See, Paul just didn't do this as an obligation. He didn't do this like, oh, man, I got this, I got this message. I better get it out because otherwise God's going to be mad. No, he wasn't that. L- listen. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, which is just before our reading today, Paul says this, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised. Paul says, look, Jesus died for you. And in Him you have new life. And he says, because of that new life, He is controlled by the love of Christ. Now, when we hear this word control, it's not a constraining sort of thing. If you go to different translations, it says this, the love of Christ uh, impels us, compels us urges us on, lays hold of us. Really, he was gripped by the love of Christ. He was compelled with a passion because he knew who Jesus was and the ministry and the reconciliation that Christ gave us. 
Are you compelled by the gospel? There's a pastor, Andy Murray. He wrote this, and uh, you have just part of the quote on the screen. Christians who are not Christians are the sorry. Christians are not those who merely agree to facts about Jesus in their heads. Christians don't merely agree to the fact that Jesus died for them. Christians are those who are defined and controlled and constrained by Christ's love. The truth of Christ's love for us shapes us and grips our heart and compels our life. So here's the question. What grips you? What impels you? What compels you? See, when you see a movie that you really like, you're like, you've got to see this movie. Or a particular restaurant that you like, or a particular whatever. Like how many of you were excited? Last, apparently last week was football, beginning of football season. I missed it. But apparently we were like, yeah, football. And I was like, oh, there's football season. <laughs> okay, that's just me. But that excitement, and people are rabid about it, aren't they? See, when I ask you what compels you, what lights up your eyes? And here Paul is saying, Jesus lights up my eyes. He compels me because I love him so. Are you compelled by the love of Christ? That's the question, really. Are you compelled by the gospel message? See, Paul gladly takes on a ministry of reconciliation because he's compelled by the love of Christ. What God has done for us is reconciliation. What God gives us is a ministry of reconciliation. What he calls us to do is to be an ambassador for Christ. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here, Paul uses the analogy of being an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador is one who doesn't have power in and of himself, but comes under the power of him who sent him. So if you were an ambassador for Caesar, for Rome, people would be like, whoa, Because you came in the power of Caesar. You came in the name of Caesar. Paul says, I am coming in the name of Christ. I'm ambassador for Christ. And what did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So we come with the full authority of Jesus. Not our authority, but his. So what are are the traits of being an ambassador? I'm going to give you five of them here. An ambassador represents the one who sent him. So, do you represent Jesus? Not just on Sunday, but throughout your life. See, there's a difference of saying, I'm a member of Joy Church and I'm representing Joy Church, versus I am an ambassador for Christ and I'm representing Jesus. And we celebrate Jesus here at Joy Church. It's a difference there. Are you in communication with him? So are you praying with him? Right? 
Are you praying? Are you spending time studying the Word? That's why I've been emphasizing prayer, gathering together in prayer. That's why the Bible studies are going wonderful. It's great. Great Bible studies. So, are you in communication with Him? Do you know the message? If you aren't studying Scripture, you most likely don't know the message very well. And you've got to be able to know the message to represent the King. A a, uh, an ambassador is a person of character. So we talked about obeying all those commands. Take a look at Ephesians. If you want to take a look at how to interact, take a look at Ephesians. Even Second Corinthians chapter 6 gives you quite a few things. An ambassador is ready. There are people who come to your home to repair something, Right? I love it when people come to my home, dishwasher repair. It's going to be there for at least a half hour, 45 minutes. Oh, I'm a pastor. Hey, do you have a church? So we talk about that. Oh, sharing the gospel message. There's a fellow who came by about the copiers this week, just just a sales call. So we sat down talking. I said, yeah, we use it. We use it on this, this card. Do you remember the card I have in back, the bridge? Shared that with him. In the grocery store, just wearing a cross. Oh. Do you, you know, what church do you go to? Oh, you know, like that. Everywhere you go, you're just ready. Because, and, and by the way, stuff like that starts happening when you're ready, and you're praying for it. And it's joyful. All right, so what does an ambassador actually do? Remember, the goal of an ambassador is to make disciples. Remember Pete in the very beginning story? He was a disciple maker. A lot of people are going to now think that I've got to be an evangelist, but that's not the full point here. Yes, sharing is definitely part of it, but it's more than that, right? So as an ambassador, you encourage one another. Somebody who is faltering in their faith or have no faith, you you encourage them. You share. You can share. You share the love of Christ with them. And you also challenge them. Yeah, I know I haven't been gone. I haven't gone to church in a long time. You should come this Sunday. Here, I, you know, I got a lot of questions about this. Oh, you know what? I got a book in the back that'll help you out there. So this is what an ambassador does to encourage, share, and challenge. The question I really want to leave you with this morning is this. To, to what degree are you compelled by the gospel? That's it. I can't, I can't push you. I can't make you be an ambassador for Christ. I can encourage you and I can challenge you and I can share with you the love of God in Christ Jesus. So much so that you go, wow, it's vitally true. And to that all the people said, Amen.